So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to you in our north side. I was putting my son to bed this week, my five-year-old son, and uh, he was looking at my watch. I was given a, an eye watch for Christmas unexpectedly, and uh, of course, uh, my face is Mickey Mouse because I'm a Christmasholic and I'm also a Disneyholic, as you all know. And uh, he was struck by it because I actually have chosen the black and white version of Mickey Mouse. And he said, Dad, where's all the color with Mickey? And I said, well, son, uh, Mickey originally was drawn in black and white. Well, he was profoundly confused at this moment. And so we began a dialogue just before his bedtime about what history used to be like. I said, you do know, Noah, that there was a time where iPads did not exist. He literally gasped in his bed. He, he, he did not understand. I said, there was a time where FaceTime did not exist, nor could you text anyone. He, he was shaking his head, sincerely not understanding. I said, actually, there was a time where you could not watch something like Netflix and just get the show when you want. I mean, the horror that was setting into my five-year-old was hilarious to me. And so I went further because I found it so funny. And I said, do you know that there was a time, there was a time, there was a time where on TV things were only only black and white. Now, at this moment, he literally looked at me and he said, did you live during those times? And I said, no, no, I didn't live during those times, but my grandma and grandpa and nanny and papa did. I said, there was even a time where there was no televisions. They had to listen to radio. And this is what he sincerely said. Did they have lamps back then? I said, yes. And then he said, and this is the, be this is the mind of a five-year-old boy. Did they even have toys in that time? Uh, I said, yes, they, they did. They just aren't as cool as yours. I mean... He could not comprehend a world where this did not exist. He could not comprehend a world where color was not accessible immediately or transportable. He could not fathom a world where he could not access information or connect to his best friend at five in Vancouver and still FaceTime and play Lego with each other thousands of kilometers away. And it was his face that got me laughing at one point carefully but thinking, 
Because at that moment, his worldview, the glasses of how he sees the world were being transformed. Capital R reality as it was and is was being filled in and he was realizing that what he thought was actually true was not completely true. Now, as we're in the book of Acts, we are about to enter into a moment, not only in the story, but as a church, because this is, again, like we've been learning, a moment, God-given, breathed moment for our church, where we are going to have reality shaken, and we are going to confront Things that actually we might believe or not might, where we might not believe, but we must believe. This is like the moment where my son is shaking his head in horror, realizing something is not as it was. This is about to happen in this moment, in this time, here in this auditorium, up in Port Perry, and across everyone watching online. Before we get there, let me begin where we did last week. I ended last week's message with the story of Philip asking this question. What in the world could make an Orthodox Jew, a a man named Philip, love, sit with, embrace a black Ethiopian eunuch from a pagan background? What in the world could overcome suspicion in the heart? What could overcome the the vast cultural differences, let alone the different worldviews, let alone race as a barrier, let alone thousands of years of misapplied Jewish theology? And the answer is Jesus. As we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've seen within eight chapters that Hebraic Jews and Greek Jews who could not stand each other suddenly were reconciled. In the middle of that, suddenly they became brothers and sisters with Samaritans who they considered half-breeds, dogs, and heretics. And then last week, we saw that a small group of the African continent now also is included in the family of God through the work of Jesus. See, this has always been the agenda of our God. He always wants to bring the nations back to himself, but now God moves his focus once again. He now looks towards one person that none of us would want to talk to, hang around, and if we were honest, many of us, if we were being genuine, would think in the core of our beings, God should not care about this person, God should not look at this person, God should not acknowledge this person, God should not show his love to this person. And yet God keeps overcoming more and more barriers, crossing more and more red lines and Rubicons that have not yet been crossed because he loves the whole world. Now remember C4, as I've been preaching through this book, God is taking us as a church through this section of Acts because he is literally showing us how to reach out to people. He's actually defining what he's already doing among us and he's actually almost prophetically telling us what he is going to keep doing in this community over the long term. And so with this next move, God is about to do something more radical than a Jew sitting with a Samaritan or an Orthodox Jew daring to sit with a non-Jew in a chariot, something more transformative than anything seen in the Bible at this moment. See, for in this moment, God not only starts to show the world, but actually reminds the church that no person is off limits to the love of God. Jesus really died for the sins of the whole world, and now even enemies that hate Jesus and hate Christians and hate the church will be loved and will become our family too. Let us not forget how our movement began. 
Our movement began in the middle of injustice. It was birthed in and out of religiously informed hate and murder. And if there is one story and one person that represents the torture and the enemy-like mentality of our movement, it is the story of Saul of Tarsus. Now, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 9 today, but you can't start in Acts 9 Though we'll be in Acts 9, you need to start in Acts 7. It's a section I referred to but didn't preach through. Stephen, remember the first person to ever die just for loving and following Jesus. He is now before the Sanhedrin. Remember what the Sanhedrin is? It's a version basically of a Jewish Vatican, Supreme Court, and Parliament, the greatest Jewish minds of the day. And multiple Christians, including Jesus, the founder of movement, have faced this group of men. And now Stephen, a deacon, faces them and he declares that Jesus is the only way, the Son of God, the fulfillment of Judaism. And it says that the members of the Sanhedrin in Acts 7.54 were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him to death. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, while stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold their sin against him. And after he said this, he died. Now, Saul is holding the coats of a large, very intellectually informed religious mob with murder on their minds. But in their view, this is not murder. This is capital punishment for blasphemy. And I want you to imagine this because this is not nice, this is not a movie, this is real. A young man is sitting now between hundreds of men, they begin to pick up stones, and they begin to smash his body to death. And as the bone and the blood begins to splatter all over the place, as death is coming close, there are two prayers that Stephen utters. The first prayer is, God, receive my spirit. And the second one is this, it is not a prayer of, F you, I hate you, I hope you die, which many people do just before they die. No, this is a profound prayer of mercy and compassion out of a deformed, broken body and mouth. He says, don't hold their sin against them. Stephen literally replicates what Jesus did on the cross. You can read it in Luke. Jesus said, Father, receive my spirit. And Jesus also prayed, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And he breathed his last. Well, in chapter 9, we see the answer to the profound prayer found in chapter 7 through Stephen. Jesus decides not to hold Saul's sin against him. It's like God showed up and seized time itself. God breaks through and changes the course of history by forgiving and touching one of his most violent enemies, the murderer of his children, Saul, who's about to become Paul. Acts 9, 1 begins like this, Meanwhile, that reminds us that Stephen is dead. The church is scattered. That's how Philip's story comes to be. People are being jailed. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That word breathing is actually an Old Testament image of a wild horse that is kicking and biting and is uncontrollable or a wild animal like a lion that if you get too close, you will be consumed and devoured. This is the emotive state of this man supposedly who represents God. It says that Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul is a man who takes initiative. 
Saul is a brilliant man. Most scholars would agree he'd have the version of basically two PhDs and Jewish studies. Saul doesn't just make threats. He doesn't just talk. He, he does what needs to be done. And his simple goal is to pursue and to root out and destroy what he viewed as this aberration of Judaism before it actually changed his faith too much. Not satisfied with the results of a man being murdered. Not satisfied with throwing men and women in jail in Jerusalem or spreading the movement across Samaria. Now he wants to do more because remember, in Saul's mind, he is doing this for God and for his faith and for the Jewish people. And so he goes to the only one that has authority, the high priest. Now, if you're a historian here or you think that, well, you're going, this doesn't make sense. I thought the whole Roman world was run by the Romans. Why would he go to the high priest? Well, in 6 AD, the Romans made a deal. In 6 AD, the Romans went to the high priest and said, we want you to govern the Jewish people. Self-governing is what we desire. So they gave the high priest extradition abilities and authority over every Jew in the whole Roman Empire, from Spain all the way across. The high priest had authority. So Saul goes to this man. Now, who's this man? This is Caiaphas. This is the same high priest who actually got Jesus murdered and executed. And he says that I need to go to Damascus because I hear there are people up there worshiping Jesus, the Nazarene. And so I need to go, whether through injury, intimidation, kidnapping, or killing, I need to get this job done. Now, do you notice what Saul calls the church? He calls us the way. This is the first name of the Christian faith before we were called Christians. It's actually the name used by our spiritual grandparents, which reminded them and us that Jesus claimed this about himself. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. It is actually what Peter repeated in Acts chapter 4 when he was preaching, and he gave these life-giving yet profoundly, profoundly offensive words in a pluralistic, spiritually dark, confused world. He said in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to any person by which we must be saved. So we are members of the way. Back to the story, back to fear, back to being hunted and harassed, back to pride, back to religious blindedness, back to theology that was right but actually wrong, back to Saul. It says, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. Now, Paul was on a 242-kilometer journey when this took place. This event, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, most historians would agree, is one of the most significant events in all of human history, religious and secular. The Holy Scriptures actually say that a light from heaven flashed all around him. Now, we know from his accounts and acts that this event took place at noonday. And so, Paul, Saul, is on his way. And as Saul is on his way, in the middle of desert-like conditions, on his way in now what we would call Syria to Damascus, at noonday when the sun is the hottest and the brightest, there is a light that appears that is so strong it actually replicated, no, it went beyond, it outshone the sun. This unnatural, powerfully blinding light shows up around Saul and the grand undoing began. Now this light from heaven is nothing more than the glory of God. Across the Bible, I've taught this before, there are over 275 references to the glory, the splendor, the beauty, the magnificence, the radiance, the rapture of God. This presence is always overwhelming, it is always overcoming, it is always filled with fire and light and lightning. Let me do this history jaunt again. This actual same experience was given at the Ten Commandments. Moses saw this same glory. 
This actually was experienced by the people who left Egypt going to the promised land. They were led by a pillar of fire at night and by a cloud by day. But the cloud by day, just so you know, was filled with fire and lightning and it was overwhelmed overwhelming. This is the same presence that showed up when Moses would go into the tabernacle and meet God as a friend meets a friend. This is the same presence in 2 Chronicles 5 when Solomon dedicated the temple and it says that the glory of God filled the temple and every priest was overwhelmed and could not do their work. This is the presence that undid Isaiah when he had his calling. This is the same presence Ezekiel the prophet saw when God revealed himself. This is the same glory that the shepherds saw when the angels announced the birth of Jesus. This is the same glory and overwhelming presence that Peter, James, and John saw at the transfiguration when they looked upon Christ and saw Moses and Elijah. This is the same actual presence that Stephen saw when he looked up and saw the glory of God. This is what scholars call the Shekinah glory of God. It is the dwellingness of God. It is the manifest revelation of God. And now Saul, laying on the ground, looking up, and we also hearing the story, fully and clearly understand something. Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, is at the center of the glory of God. Jesus is the fulfillment and is the full expression of the whole Old Testament. This is the truth and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ because he is not just truth, he is capital T truth because Jesus is more than a teacher and he's more than a prophet and he's more than a religious revolutionary or leader. He's more than a moral example. Jesus is the great I am, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. He is God in flesh, fully human, fully God, Alpha and Omega beginning and end. And when you want to know God and see God and understand his glory, you will always, always, always exclusively find the name and the person and the power and the work of Jesus from Nazareth. That is what Saul looks up and sees. And what is the result of such an epic encounter? Well, Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just light and not just presence, but voice. And the one who stands in the middle of the voice, if you read it in the original text, does not speak Greek and does not speak Hebrew. He speaks Aramaic. He speaks the language of Jesus. This phenomenon, by the way, in this time, rabbis knew it. They called it the heavenly echo. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Confused, dazed, scared, out of control, this enemy of heaven who thought he was heaven's messenger and heaven's prosecutor and heaven's greatest thinker musters up the ability to speak. I guarantee you it was not informed by courage. It was probably adrenaline. Who are you, God? Heart pounding. I'm sure he's peed his pants. I guarantee it. Waiting and wondering if this would be the end of his existence. All his ambitions. Let this set in this morning. All his ambitions, all his dreams, all his education, all his political and religious connections, all his worldly understanding. Yes, he could speak multiple languages, lived around the whole Roman world, was a Roman citizen, he had a Jewish thinker, all the human favor, all the friendships, all that made him something meant nothing in this moment. This is like facing death. You alone wait for the answer. I don't know if it seemed like hours or seconds, but then to his great horror, The heavenly voice, the one that he had called, God, who are you, reveals himself. He said, I am Jesus. I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. The epiphany turns into a Christocentric experience and begins to sink in. Can you imagine what Saul is thinking? Jesus 
is alive. Jesus is in the middle of God's Shekinah glory. Everything I have thought and everything I have believed and everything I have held on to is off and is missing something. I am undone. I am wrong. I am overcome. I will surely die. I will be thrown into hell for such a sin for I have been committing blasphemy when I thought I was committing worship. It was the church father Origen that wrote years later, everyone who betrays the disciples of Jesus is reckoning as betraying Jesus himself. Now notice this this morning. Leaning close, everyone. Observe. Jesus doesn't say, why are you attacking my people? He says, why are you touching me? Saul, you're hounding me. You're pursuing me. You're harassing me. You're hunting me. You're bullying me. You're discriminating against me. You're stoning me. You're murdering me. But now I have come for you. Jesus has been suffering. Why? Because the scriptures teach us that Jesus is the head of the church and the head of the body. And we as Christians, even in our messed up lives, we actually are the true body of Christ. This is what Saul, who later becomes Paul, would write in in the church in Corinth. He would say, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. And so every time a Christian is touched, Jesus is touched. I'm sure to Saul's surprise and to many of us as readers that God who he'd attacked and thought he represented but did not, did not kill him or throw him into hell but turned around and loved him and gave him a task which is redemptive and merciful and forgiving and life-altering not only for him but for billions after. Now go and get into the city. You're going to be told what you must do. Oh, by the way, this is not suggestion. Do you feel like this, Saul? It's like, let's go. He gets up and this is the starting of conversion Not conversion to another faith, by the way, because Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. He is seeing now his faith as it is fully should be. This is a conversion of will and intellect and emotion and theology. Well, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. Like being near a nuclear explosion, the culmination of this divine experience not only affects Paul, but those who are with them, but they cannot see or understand, but they are still speechless. Saul now needs to get off the ground. The presence of God, as we see throughout the Bible, when the presence of God is so strong, people are slain, fallen over, overcome by the presence of God. So forcefully, he is physically overwhelmed. And as God's presence literally subsides from the moment, he tries to rise. Now, the, ins- the, in- the instinctive uh, reflex of Paul, and like all of us with bright light, is to close our eyes and shield them. He tries now opening his eyes, and he can't. See, God has done something. He has blinded him. Why? Out of anger? Out of- no, no. God is physically demonstrating what Saul's actual spiritual condition has been. Blind and misguided and theologically informed, but wrong, needing direct- direction and actually totally helpless. So now his friends who are going to do the dirty work of throwing people just like many of us sitting in this audience today into jail now have to help the religiously informed person, this intimidator, this persecutor and prosecutor now has to be led humbly and confused and blind into the city. The strong visionary has to be led into the place where he actually was going to do damage, but now he has been damaged. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. It's not just that he's sort of in a hospital bed convalescing because of the physical shock. No, he's in a state of repentance. As the enormity of his sin grew around him, things became so clear to this blind, sightless man. 
And as his world unraveled, I'm sure his personal mentor's words started ringing in his mind. See, here's what we know, not only from the Bible, but actually secular and Jewish history. Saul was mentored under a man named Gamaliel. He was one of the two top rabbis in the time of Jesus and around his time. He was regarded as one of the best thinkers of his day, and Paul's actual, Saul's mentor was this man. And we read in Acts chapter 5 that Gamaliel, Gamaliel had already warned the Sanhedrin and warned his mentoree. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, you leave these men alone, for, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Gamaliel's words come true. So now you've got a man who is profound and intellectual and multicultural and educated, sitting, weeping for three days, realizing that he has raised a hand against the God he supposedly loved. Can you imagine sitting with the murder of Stephen, realizing that Stephen knew God closer and better than you did, and you thought you were his representative? And as he sits there weeping and wondering in repentance and broken to his core, Jesus shifts the scene again. The Spirit of God moves somewhere else, and now another encounter happens. It says that the church already was established in Damascus. And it says in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And Jesus came to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Jesus, he answered. God acts again. The Lord calls Ananias to be his hands and feet to, to deal with the killer of the faithful. This encounter is actually almost like a repli replication of Samuel in the temple in the Old Testament. Jesus said to Ananias, I want you to go somewhere. I want you to go to a house, uh, the house of Judas on Straight Street, and I need you to ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, and he's praying right now, and in a vision, he has already seen a man named Ananias coming and placing his hands on him to restore his sight. This is divine conspiracy, why no one? Now, I want to stop and remind you about Straight Street. If you've heard me preach before on this, you know this. Straight Street to us means nothing, but it was world famous in its day. It was the greatest street in Damascus, and it was known throughout the whole Roman world. It had great porches and great gates on each side, and it was filled with the best fashion of the day. This was Yorkville. This, this was Regent Park in London. This is Fifth Avenue in New York. This is the Million Dollar Mile in Chicago. This is Rodeo Drive in L.A., the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Like, I mean, this is, this is, this is Burberry. This is Gucci. Do you, do you understand? Like, th this, is where, this is where the fashion took place. This is where money was. And I think it's absolutely hilarious that God's next move would actually happen now in another unexpected place, that the Spirit of God is about to be poured out in the middle of the fashion industry. See, no one is outside of God's watch. <laughs> so God, at the same time he's appearing to Ananias, has already appeared to Saul, setting this up, and told him very expli explicitly what's going to happen. Now, most of us think that if we meet Jesus in a vision that we would be so overwhelmed and so thankful, and we would just say yes. But that's not how reality ever plays out. I love the interaction between Ananias and Jesus. Uh, Lord, Ananias answered. It's sort of like he says, yeah, thanks for the vision. It's great to see you. I've probably never met you before, but I've given my whole life to you. Hi. Um, I, can I just say a few things to you, O risen Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end head of the church? I, I've heard... Maybe you haven't, but I have. Um, many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
uh, you know, Stephen, and, and, and I just need to tell you, O king of the universe, that he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. That's me. Now, don't you find it interesting that those in the Bible that are close to God argue with him all the time? Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Job, uh, David, Jeremiah. And listen, our God loves a good wrestle. Our God desires authenticity. But let me just remind you of part two to the story, which most pastors don't preach. Every one of them lost. The wrestle is right, but God is God in the end. And so Ananias says to Jesus, to God himself, and here's sort of the modern abbreviation, this is crazy. This cannot be right. This man is your enemy, and this man is my enemy, and my wife's enemy, and our family's enemy, and my friend's enemy, and this man is going to come and hurt me and us. And God, full of sovereignty and full of power, yet full of gentleness and love, turns around and says in this vision to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before non-Jews and their kings and my people, the people of Israel. No more conversations. Look, Ananias, I am Savior and Lord. This is my will. Saul is called to be my chosen instrument. He is my chosen vessel. I am the author, not you or not Saul. I will do what I want, when I want, and I will do it by my power alone. He is my chosen instrument. And the fact that he hates you or hates me is mute. Why? Because I have decided to forgive him, and I have decided to make him family. Oh, and by the way, he's going to carry my name. Can you imagine the shock of Ananias hearing this? Yeah, yeah, I've chosen that guy to be my representative and my ambassador and my, la my liaison, by the way, to all the non-Jews of the world and their kings and also back to the Jewish people. Saul to Paul, enemy to friend, the one who's actually going to fulfill Acts 1-8. You know, when we were at Christmas as a congregation, we were looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christmas story. And I know if you remember one of the messages and one of the places of Scripture we looked but when Jesus was eight days old, it said that Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to be dedicated as a firstborn, as it was the custom in the law. And as they walked into that momentous, massive temple grounds, this very, very old priest named Simeon, who walked in the Spirit and knew the God's voice, had been reassured by God himself that before he died, he would see the Lord's Christ. And so, remember, came that little tween mom and Joseph, a proud father, stepfather, really. And as they walk in, this old priest walks right up out of the thousands of people there, walks right up and takes the baby right out of Mary's arms and looks at this very normal baby. And do you remember what he sang? Remember what he said? Because this is just so profound. He said, Sovereign God, as you have promised, you now may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to non-Jews and the glory to your people, Israel. Do you know what's so profound? The song of Simeon and the prayer of Stephen is fulfilled in the hands of a murdering enemy. There's more. In the middle of this conversation between Ananias and the risen Jesus Jesus says, I'm going to show Saul how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. Don't misread that. This isn't penance. This isn't like, well, you are such an evil, wicked person. I'm going to make you really suffer so you get into heaven. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This is just the truth that if you stand and you call in the name of Jesus and you preach the name of Jesus in a world, you will always suffer. Well, Ananias obeyed. He went to that very house in the middle of high fashion and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said these words, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul repents and he believes and he is filled with the Spirit of God at conversion. He is baptized in the Spirit and then he is baptized by Ananias. Fire inward, water outwardly. Now Saul is spiritually and physically in a new place. He can see truth as it truly is. He can see the world as it really is. And he will never look back again to the blindness that he so loved and thought for all those years was sight. Even to the point where his name is changed from Saul to Paul. And if you know anything about Christianity or our movement or the scriptures, from that moment onward, this man, this murderer, this religious, <laughs> really, terrorist, would plant churches, writes 13 books of the New Testament, spreads the good news of Jesus around the whole known Roman world, and in the end, he dies, just like Stephen did, at the hands of others who think they know the truth, and he forgives them too. It's so interesting, this, this uh, story, so poignant, so movie-esque, but so important for us, is the world is tearing itself apart, and hate is everywhere, and everyone else is wrong. Jesus steps in and shows us a different way. Let me ask one question to you this morning. Are you Saul? Many people that join us here are not Christians or were Christians. Many of you are watching. Maybe you're up in Port Perry in that high school. Some people become Saul by pain because things were just bad, really bad, and God didn't come through or the church hurt you or some church leader hurt you or you cannot stand what the Christian church teaches. On. So out of pain, you become an enemy of the cross and of Jesus or, or maybe you've given allegiance to another religion or another God or, or you're spiritual but you know you're not or maybe you're, you're intellectually agnostic or atheist or maybe you are Saul by darkness. Maybe you are a Satanist here even today and we don't know you're here and you are given to darkness willingly and you hate the cross of Christ. No matter who you are, if you are Saul this morning, listen closely. I show you that in this story that Jesus started the conversation with Saul and moved by love to save him, made him a messenger of life. This is the message of our living master at this moment to you, whoever you might be, to any one of you actually who's not a Christian yet at all. All of us like Saul have lived our lives thinking we were right and we weren't. Jesus comes to us through a word, through a vision, through this message, through others, and says, oh, by the way, your arrogance and your pride and your pain 
has made you separated from God and you cannot get back to him because of sin and you may not even want to get back to him, but actually it's greater than this. See, see, God's love is so great for you when you realize that Jesus is who he claims. He is God and he did die for us and he's the only one who can forgive us. And if you are moved to repentance, the turning of your life from the way it was to a life his way, his work and his life, life will be given to you. See, Saul prayed and fasted as a sign of regret and called out for mercy. He accepted Jesus his enemy as the son of God made him savior leader and lord and at that moment scales fell from his eyes and now he sees reality as it truly is so the same for you if you are Saul if there is one Saul among us today or if there's a Saul listening online then I just want to say humble yourself humble yourself for you are only human you are not God and you are not in control and you do not have all the facts Call out for relationship and mercy and second chances and purpose in this life and eternal life. Don't be like the old Saul. Be like the Saul in Damascus who stopped fighting heaven and stopped fighting Jesus and stopped relying on his education and his good looks or his good works or his religion, thinking that he could buy himself off with a holy God by what he thought or by what he did. Drop your history or your rebellion or your self-sufficiency or your money or your other gods or your values or your sexuality or your rights. Whatever you lift up as what you hate against Jesus and his church, Jesus comes to you at this moment now and says, no, no, you actually do not see correctly and I have come to set you free from yourself. And my prayer right now, and I'm praying this right in this moment, is Lord Jesus, if there is any soul within the sound of my voice, Begin appearing to them because you're the only one can show them your love. Hear her prayer, O Lord. Now, many of us are not Saul. We're Christians. And the real question we need to ask is, how do we love Saul? Because I've been preaching this and any pastor worth his salt in the West knows this. We're not at the center of society. We're in the edge of society and it's getting farther and farther away. And here's the difficulty we're standing in the middle of all these different groups and we're saying actually they've all got some stuff wrong. And so this Saul-like experience, whether it's small or large, is going to grow. We can't avoid this anymore. So the question we need to ask, the Spirit of God is teaching us C4 at this moment. In the middle of a great move of God, there will be resistance. How do you love someone who hates your faith? How do you love someone who cannot stand what you believe? Well, the first and foremost answer to this is that we actually need to remember something and if we do not remember we will forget and when we will forget we will be done we actually have to go back as christians and believe what the bible actually says about us and how much trouble we were really in and then and only then when we truly believe what trouble we were in before we met jesus whether three five or 80 years old then does the mercy and grace and forgiveness not only make sense for us but we will open our heart up to anyone else do you remember what paul would later write romans 5 10 for if we while we were gods what's the word enemies We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Every human being who has not met the living God through Jesus is in an enemy-like state with God because of behavior, thoughts, or patterns. And every single one of us used to be Saul. And if you don't believe you were Saul at one point, then you will never have compassion on the Sauls around you. 
But if you realize you were Saul, then you will realize the extent of the mercy of God on your life. And you will have compassion on those who hate us the most. All of us sitting in this room have pasts. Many of us struggle and wander and go back to our past sometime, but we have encountered the mercy of God, and we know that though we struggle and go back sometimes, here is what we need to hear so clearly this morning. We no longer as Christians build our identity. We no longer celebrate or relish or swim in the things that God has saved us from. Oh, we may struggle with them, but we do not relish them any longer. See, here's what Paul wrote to another very different church in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, oh don't be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral or idolaters, people who worship other gods, or people who commit adultery, or men who have sex with men, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers, are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, we may struggle with that list, but we no longer build our identities in this because we know that God has had so much compassion and showed us what reality is. We realize we've needed so much mercy that actually we were enemies of God even when we thought we were right. And because of the mercy and love of Jesus, we've been transformed God. We love Saul when we remember how much we've been saved from and we used to be Saul ourselves. We have to get this rooted in us because if we do not we will forget that our fight is not against our neighbor and friend. It's against, it's against the principalities. It's against the evil one. The second thing, how do you keep loving Saul? You pray for them. You keep praying that Jesus shows up in mercy. You live an authentic life, and you're ready for them to cross the line of faith. What did Jesus teach us in our manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, no, but I tell you, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We remember that we were Saul. We remember that we are called to pray for those that hate our faith and hate our worldview the most. We are called to have compassion that is unnatural. And here's the third thing. We are called to forgive them of their injustices. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. That is a, that is a lie from the pit of hell. There are things sitting in this church that you will never forget. Forgiveness means over time you make the continual decision by the power of God in community not to hold things against people that deserve it because you yourself have experienced the mercy of Jesus towards you. We remember that we were Saul. We pray for those people that hate us. We pray for the, the every single person that cannot stand the gospel or the worldview of Christ. We pray for them by name with great compassion and we forgive them their injustice and it is injustice and here's the next thing some of you need to hear this morning. You remember that when you suffer for the cause of Christ, they're actually touching Jesus, not just you. Some of you feel you're so alone. You look at the culture all around and you're like, I feel so, you're not alone. Jesus is the head of the church. We are the body of Christ. Every time someone overseas beheads a Christian, Jesus is there. Every time someone in North Korea is thrown into jail, Jesus is there. 
Every time someone mocks you for your worldview about sex, money, or power, Jesus is there. Never forget that Jesus is sovereign, and Jesus is not forgetting anything, and Jesus is touched when you are touched. And here's the good news. Justice will be given in the end. For that person, either in the end, will face the judgment of God, and or they will become your brother and sister, and Jesus will take the bullet for them. But in the end, there is justice for persecution of all Christians. Amen and amen. How do we love Saul? You start believing you were him because the Bible tells me so. You start actively praying for people who don't agree or actively resist. You remember you are not alone and when you are mocked or we see it around the world, Jesus is being touched. We forgive people not because they deserve it but because Jesus has forgiven us. But here is the most revolutionary thing. This is what the Spirit of God is saying to this congregation in this moment. I cannot underestimate the nowness of this. Did you notice the very first word Ananias used with Saul? Brother. Not, I know what you did last summer. (laughs) I know who you are and what you did. You murdered. No, no, no. Ananias walks in to the most terrifying person that he could face. And he says to him, Brother Saul, Jesus has sent me. See, for we are praying, not just this church, so many churches in the GTA are praying for a move we have never seen. And one of the greatest things that's going to happen across our churches is those that we cannot socially, emotionally, intellectually stand are going to become our brothers and sisters. And it's already begun in this church. And all I want to plead with you is that when they come in a connect group or through these doors or over a coffee, you are prepared to say to any person that God our Father elects and Jesus dies for and the Spirit fills any person, brother or sister. This is how we show the world that Jesus is stronger than politics and race and violence and philosophy and religion and moralism because Jesus makes blood enemies, brothers and sisters through the cross and his work, in his love. This is the good news of Jesus for our world. So, Lord, at this moment, just among us here at this first service, all of them watching up in the north, oh God, do this. Do this thing. We've already heard stories among us of it happening in small points, but among family members who are unreconciled and hate each other, overcome racial barriers and economic barriers and political barriers. Oh, Jesus, send your spirit in such a powerful way that there will be many souls among us and not just our church, 
right across Toronto, we ask. We invite the unnatural, uncomfortable, reality-bending, truth-inspiring work of the true Jesus who's in the middle of the Shekinah glory who sends the Spirit. Amen.